Welcome to the American Grown Podcast, hosted by Austin Sullivan. The American Grown Podcast will focus on people from different walks of life and their journey to where they are now. Now, turn up your volume and settle in for a great episode. Hi, I'm Austin Sullivan, and I'm your host for the American Grown Podcast, recorded inside the ColorTech Creative Solutions Studios. Today, we have Lou Fabrizi, a Master Army Aviator and Black Hawk Helicopter Instructor Pilot, who serves his country as a member of the Pennsylvania Army National Guard. He is a husband and a father, and has a deep passion for music. Lou, welcome to episode 12 of the American Grown Podcast. Austin, awesome. Thanks for having me, man. I appreciate it. Yeah, Lou, I'm so glad you can make it. So for this episode, you're actually the first guest that is going to make us a homemade cocktail. Yeah, man. I figured let's start it out right and uh, get a drink to, to get us loosened up so we can have a good conversation today. So do you want me to go right into it? Yeah, please do. Yeah, so, um, you know, I, I, I like bourbon, uh, as many people do. And, um, you know, I've been experimenting around with uh, smoking bourbons. It's a very common thing to do with uh, old fashions, that type of thing. I don't really like old fashions because um, they're a little too sweet for me. So I wanted to kind of come up with a technique, something I can make my own. So um, I mess around with these, uh, you know, smoking the bourbons using different kits, different things like that. Mess around with different types of woods. And over about a year, this is kind of what I settled on. And I came up with this drink. So um one of the woods that I like to use is pear wood, believe it or not. And people are like, pear wood, that's kind of weird. Um, but what I've noticed is, you know, the fruited type woods when you're smoking alcohol work a lot better than, say, like, you know, a, a hickory wood or mesquite. Those ones are just a little too strong. So I settled on pear, which smells awesome and it, it holds in the alcohol real nice. And so at the same time that I was experimenting with this, I got a sample in the mail of this Mike's hot honey. And I'm like, well, whiskey and honey go together really well. So can I do something with this? So started messing around with it. And uh, I kind of came up with this drink. Um, so if, if you don't mind, I'm going to get started into making it right. Yeah, definitely. So we have uh, a glass here and we have these nice ice balls that you provided. So thank you for doing that. Mm -hmm. And then I'm going to take the Mike's hard honey and I'm just going to drizzle it over top oh, wow. of the ice cube. Right. And kind of let that settle in there real nice. And then today I have a fine bottle of bourbon, right? Which is Weller, pretty common bottle of, of whiskey, but very impossible to get here in Pennsylvania. So I actually kind of picked this one up in New York, uh, legally, of course. And this is a, a nice weeded bourbon. So I'm just going to pour a little bit in there like that. All right. Okay. I'm with you. Yep. Now we're going to let that sit and open up a little bit using the ice cube. Now I'm going to take it and I'm gonna smoke it, right? So I'm gonna put this thing on top of it right here. Okay. And then we're gonna get it smoking with the pear wood. We're gonna have a fire, all right. We're gonna have a fire, so hopefully you don't set the fire alarm off here right. in your studio. It's super nice, I don't wanna mess it up. And then, so I'll just do it, then I'll kinda of talk about how I came up with the name okay. of it, right? So yeah, light it up. we're gonna take this, and then the blowtorch is gonna let the smoke come down on it really nice. Wow. It's kinda of beautiful, right? It's like a work of art. It is a work Honestly. of art. So how did you look at that? Yep. So now we're going to kind of let it sit there and okay. we're going to let the smoke absorb into the whiskey real nice, right? Yeah. Now remember, we got the hot honey in there too. And then after about 15, 20 seconds, we're almost there right now, I'm going to take it. Mm -hmm. And this is the best part, Okay. Ready? I'm going to do this and then we're going to let the smoke just nicely come out. Oh, uh, okay, okay. Yeah, now I'm going to do my side. All right. So we're going to take the blowtorch once again. We're going to get the smoke going down in there. 
Look at that. And, and for all the listeners, the smell is amazing. Wow. Okay, so we're going to let that set in there. Then the, the ice ball is going to fog it up real nice, too, and make the smoke nice and thick, which is good. And you can see in yours, yeah, the, it's just kind of hanging out at the bottom there. Yeah, it's and almost like a, a, a swamp down in Louisiana, you know, yeah. just, just the fog there. So now we're going to do that, kind of let it do oh, its wow. thing. Isn't that beautiful? Very cool. Okay, so now okay. grab okay, grab your glass. You can take that one. I'll take All right, mine. I'll take this one. Yep. All right, we're going to cheers real quick. Definitely cheers. Give it a little swirl, and then just take a nice small sip on it. Nice, right? Oh, wow. Oh, wow. <laughs> oh, very good. Holy cow. So what I call this drink is the Centralia, right? And everyone in this area is familiar with, and I think that's how you pronounce it, right? Yep, Centralia. Yeah. So everyone's familiar with that. Kind of a famous town throughout the country, you know, a video game, a movie based on it. Um, really cool place. So I was driving through there, and I came up with this idea. And so how it all kind of ties together, and I know it's a little corny, but the Mike's Hot Honey is the fire, the mine fire below the ground. Okay. That's the hot and the burn, right? And then as you smoke the, the drink and you take it off and it's smoking, that's your graffiti highway or, you know, your cemetery where the smoke's right. coming out of it too. So kind of a corny theme behind it. Um, you know, I, I would like for it to catch on. It may not. I will tell you that I've guest bartended a few times in Philadelphia, had some house parties, and these went over really, really well. So the Centralia, you got the hot burn below and then the smoke coming up from the ground. Oh, it's fantastic. I mean, the taste and it's, like I said, it's an art, but yet the... Uh... The act of making it, you know, it takes, it's it, it, kind of like a little craft, you know, it's not just pouring a drink in and, and throw some ice on it, you sure. know what I mean? So no, thank you for bringing, I'm going to have another sip if that's all right. No, please, we okay. can sip on this the rest of the time right. and the smoke will kind of hang out there and continue to flavor the whiskey as we wow. go. And then when you get to the bottom, it's definitely going to burn a little bit. Okay, right, that's that, uh, that hot honey down there. Yeah. No, I mean, the smoke aroma is, is amazing. And, uh, yeah, the studio's still intact. So, Dad, if you listen to this, we're good. Everything's all right. I, I told him what we were going to do, and he's a bit of a bourbon drinker, and, and my father-in-law is a big bourbon drinker. And uh, I said, yeah, we're going to smoke some uh, some bourbon, or Lou is. And uh, so studio's good. Everything's good. Lou, let's kind of talk about how you and I met. To me, uh, it was always Mr. Lloyd or Howard Lloyd. Mm -hmm. um, now, he's a, a serviceman, I believe, recently retired and you know him probably much better than I do. I knew his his family, his kids. But it was at the uh, 2015 Hershey Lodge. I was photographing the 56th annual Army Aviation Ball, if you remember. And uh, you and your wife, Kathleen, Correct. Yeah. came up. You know, I was there. Part of Color Tech Creative Solutions is Blue Cardinal Photography. So we were there photographing the event. People come up and get pictures. And you, I think, were the first couple to come up and take a chance. Yeah. So it, it was a lot of fun. And, uh, I do remember that very, very well. Kind of the background on that is I hate taking formal pictures and, you know, you're in your dress uniform, your military uniform, and you're on, you're in your bow tie. And, uh, I am not a photogenic person whatsoever. However, my wife is. So she loves to take these formal pictures and it's just so uncomfortable for me. But what you did, Austin, was you, you kind of, you're funny, right? And you kind of made me relax a little bit out of like, the 200 pictures we took that night, one or two of them, uh, you know, came out pretty good where I didn't look all nervous and everything like that. So uh, we became friends soon thereafter and uh, kept in touch over the years. And I think you might have photographed uh, one of our formals one more time. And then, you know, I um, recently put together, a th well, it was actually a few years now, uh, the Battle of the Bands yes. uh, at yep. the Allen Theater in Anvil. Beautiful uh, theater there. And I reached out to you to see if Color Tech could sponsor it. And you did. And you actually photographed that event. It turned out great. So, um, you know, we're kept in touch. And then I saw that 
you know, you started this podcast and I was like, Hmm, I wonder if he's going to invite me on. And then the next day I get a message yeah. from you saying, Hey, would you like to be on the podcast? So yeah, of course. Super pumped, dude. To go back to the Allen Theater, great venue. Um, Ed and Sue Felty, uh, great owners and, and family friends. So, uh, yeah, when you reached out, I was like, oh, this is a, a perfect mix. Yes, you were definitely one of the probably top 10 people. I talked to my wife about starting this podcast and, you know, who do you want to interview? Who do you want to have on? Some were friends and family because, of course, everybody has a story to tell. You know, sure. everybody wants to come on. But I, I want to definitely open it up to uh, different people with different backgrounds, different stories. Some some might be clients, some, you know, uh, connections that I made throughout the years. And, uh, yeah, I'm glad you could make it today. So can we throw it back? You know, what was your early childhood like? I don't know much about siblings or your mom and dad, what they do. Where'd you grow up? So I uh, grew up in the, I'm going to call it the sticks, uh, about 30 minutes outside of uh, northeast Pittsburgh. So I'm not. Uh, from from the area here, about again thirty minutes outside of Pittsburgh. Uh, very good childhood, very loving, great memories, great friends. My uh, I have a, a brother that's five years younger. He lives in uh, Tampa, Florida, right now. He's doing very well down there. Growing around, my dad actually was a prison guard, and he worked okay. in a, a maximum security state prison in downtown Pittsburgh. So uh, I will tell you, at times that made for an interesting childhood because. Uh, every once in a while, I'd hear stories of what people did, why they were in the maximum security prison, um, you know, and uh, maybe that kind of worked as like a scared straight thing. I'm not quite sure. But, uh, you know, they uh, great parents, again, great memories, just a great childhood. And we were outside all of the time uh, as kids running around in the woods and, you know, growing up, it was great. We traveled as much as we could, um, you know, mainly in the United States. And we are just a very tight family. Was there a story in particular? Because... Uh... You know, growing up in Lebanon, I know Pittsburgh and Philadelphia and all the big cities, you know, can have some, some rough parts of town. And was there a story in particular that really kind of, you know, as I say, scared you straight that you remember? Well, um, okay. Since you put me on the spot on that one, I think my, my dad, again, he worked in this prison. And one year, Christmas Day, he actually took me in to the prison. Oh. Yes. Uh, okay. And we went in there and we kind of walked around and then ended up... Uh, locking me in a cell with a with a lifer, Whoa. and he didn't do it to be mean. He right. he had this thing all planned out, and uh, I I don't want to, you know, it wasn't a bad experience or a weird experience like that. But he just kind of took me around and uh, showed me what it was like inside the prison. I wasn't a bad kid or anything like that. I think he just kind of wanted to show me where he worked. But you know, taking your taking the kids to to work is a little different when your dad's a prison <laughs> guard in a maximum security right. prison, right? Yeah. But that was cool. So. Yeah, and, and it was interesting. In fact, I think a lot of uh, inmates from Philadelphia would actually go to Pittsburgh and they and vice versa. That way there wasn't a bunch of you know different gang things going on. I don't remember right. a whole lot about it. I do remember, like I said, going Christmas Day and walking around the prison, which was a super interesting experience. Very neat. You know, early childhood, you get into high school, sports, athlete, musician. What did you do for, for fun in high school? What was your kind of drive? I, I noticed a lot of people you've had on the podcast, uh, you know, were motivated by coaches or, you know, the different things right. in, in high school. High school was certainly a positive experience for me. I had a great group of friends, fond memories, but I can't really say um, that I was motivated by anyone in particular. And I think the reason for that was I hadn't really found my stride uh, at that point as a person where I wanted to go. Um, you know, I wasn't, you know, I was kind of an average student in high school. You know, I was an okay athlete. I played baseball, but not really uh, mm -hmm. for the high school. So high school really wasn't a thing for me. What I needed to do in high school was to get through it, get into college, and then find my way from there, which was really important. So 
not any life-changing things that really happened to me in high school, except for, you know, good childhood and good friends. But that really wasn't where I found myself. So you get through high school, you make those connections, make those friends, college life, you know, how, how was that? And where, where'd you go to college? Yeah. So that's, that's really where I think I started to find my stride. Um, I only applied to one school that was IUP, um, a state school in Indiana, Pennsylvania. It's the only place I ever wanted to go. So once I got in there, uh, I felt pretty good about where I was going. And then, you know, very quickly, that's where I kind of found my stride and begin and began to transform uh, into the person I was today. Obviously, I still had a lot of growing at that age, but that's really where I started to feel comfortable about who I was. Um, and I think the reason why was because I was on my own. I was making my own decisions. And really, the most important thing was, you know, the success or failure was strictly on me and no one else. Mm-hmm. There was no one going to be telling me, get up, go to school, study. You know, IUP at that time was known as like the party school of the entire country. Yeah. And it was. So it was very easy to get caught up in that. And and I kind of found uh, a sense of responsibility where I could have fun, I could party, but I could also be responsible. And I started to feel really good about uh, where where I was. And I thrived in that situation, frankly, met a ton of friends and really for the first time in my life started to succeed academically, uh, was in college, which was pretty cool. Yeah. I I think, I think the college life, you know, can kind of go two ways. One is, uh, party atmosphere and you don't take school seriously and you just, you know, you go five, six years instead of the three or four, whatever it is, you know, to to get out. And then the other option is like you said, you have all that free time Mm -hmm. and you can invest in yourself and you can work out, you can go to the gym, wake up, study, go to the library and really, like you said, find yourself and what you're passionate about. You're in college. When did the military come about for you? I know some people, you know, 2001 with 9-11, that drove a lot of people to join the service and and become a service member. So what was that for you? Sure. So um, interesting story. So during my freshman year at IUP, um, I took an ROTC class instead of basically a gym class or a required class you had to take. And, you know, immediately, and again, remember in high school, I didn't have any aspirations in the military. But I did this ROTC and I found it fun, challenging, and I immediately loved the camaraderie in it. It just was super cool. And I was like, I began thinking about possibly enlisting over the next year. So I remember my sophomore year and and to kind of put this in perspective, that was uh, 2000. Okay. So this is before 9-11. I remember a very defining moment in my life where I was in this, this shitty little apartment with all my friends and it was tight and you know, college was going great. It really was. But I was thinking, I think I want to join the military. And I remember this, again, defining moment where I said, if I don't do this, mm-hmm. I'm going to regret it the rest of my life. And I don't normally make decisions or have bold statements like that. But I said, this is something that I want to do. And if I don't do it, I'm going to regret it. So very soon thereafter, uh, I enlisted uh, in the in the Pennsylvania Army National Guard, called up my parents who weren't expecting. And I said, hey, mom, hey, dad, I joined the Army. You know, they were like, oh, okay, <laughs> that's interesting. Later that year, I went to basic training. And just out of luck, where the Army needed me at that time uh, was an aviation unit in Johnstown, Pennsylvania, which is about an hour from Indiana. Did basic training, did my training. I resumed IUP later that year without missing anything, which actually worked out oh, pretty good. Nice. And then uh, got back into ROTC and started my journey of becoming a military officer at that point. And that whole thing happened right around September 11th. So I was already in. I was already enlisted. Okay. I decided that I wanted to pursue being a military officer. And then boom, 9-11 hits. Yeah, so that was interesting. And then I'm thinking, hey, I'm making a good decision here, all that good stuff. Before I know it, I finish the rest of my college career out. The day I graduate from IUP, I also get commissioned uh, as a second lieutenant. Oh, wow. 
and because I was already in the aviation unit, mm-hmm. uh, I kind of fell into the, the aviation or the pilot role. So very soon thereafter, in 2004, I find myself uh, heading down to Fort Rucker, Alabama for flight school, Okay, which is like a big culture shock. So you grow up in the Northeast Pennsylvania your whole life. You head down to the Deep South in uh, Southern Alabama, and it's just a cool thing. And I embraced the whole thing when I went down there. But definitely uh, being a Yankee uh, down there in Alabama is, is a fun thing, and it's, it's an awesome learning experience. So I did flight school. Soon thereafter, you know, this is now post 9-11. Uh, it's 2004, 2005 timeframe. Okay. I'm going to immediately get sent to Iraq, basically. So th- that's kind of during the surge, you know, and it was, it was my time to go and do that. So uh, I found myself uh, 2006 timeframe being sent overseas to Iraq uh, as an Apache pilot. And I didn't mean to cut you off, but what was going through your mind? Because you're, you know, a young man, you have this ambition and you're like, hey, mom, dad, I want to join, you know, uh, and get in the service. So what's going through your mind? And then especially as you're in training and going overseas, what are your thought process just for the listeners out there and people that don't know? Yeah. You know, it's, it's interesting. Again, I I think I was 24, 25, um, when I was heading over uh, to Iraq at that time and everyone was going over. So if you were in the military, you're pretty much heading over to the the middle East, right? The, the training is, is extensive, you know what I mean? So it's like anything. I know you were a football player and, you know, it's it's like practice, practice, practice. And then at some point you want to put me in coach. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? You're ready to go. Yeah. So it's, yeah. The, it's the same thing there. I okay. also will tell you at the age of 25 that this would have been my first deployment at that point. And ignorance is bliss in the fact that you know what you need to do. You know what the mission is. You go over, you do that type of stuff. But you don't know what it's going to be like until you get there. Right. So, what to expect. Yeah. It's so there's the, a little yeah. bit of, uh, you know... Uh, ignorance there but not in a bad way it's because mm-hmm. you just haven't been there yet and you haven't done it naive yeah to say. pretty much yeah. yeah so continue i didn't, I didn't mean to yeah to no that's that's there. a great question so i went over there as an apache pilot um which is um if you know anything so there's a lot of helicopters flying around this area right yes yeah, um, there time. hasn't been a, a apaches in a while but apaches are basically the fighter helicopter uh that the army has so i did that did the year deployment it went it went very well you know came back home Took about a year back in Pittsburgh doing some things, getting settled in. And then I think uh, probably about 2008, 2009, I moved here for a full-time position at Fordine Town Gap. And I've really been here for the last 15 years now. So that's, I kind of just summed up 22, in November, it'll be 22 years yeah. for me in the military. Wow. Kind of summed that up in about five minutes. Well, thank so. you for your service. That's an extensive record. And I want to hit on some of those things you just talked about. Sure. So being an Apache pilot. What's your role on the battlefield? Are you picking troops up, delivering them, or are you more providing air support? Yeah, so that's a great question. I know I sound naive, but I, I really don't know. And No, 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 I it's think, a great question yeah. because uh, I, I'm now actually a, back, a Black Hawk pilot instead of uh, an Apache pilot. It, okay. you, at a certain point, you may change. We shift around the helicopters. It's, it's a long story. But the Black Hawk, you do pick up troops and take them and drop them off. There's room in the back. However, in the Apache, which I did when I was over there in Iraq, um, that's just a pilot and a co-pilot. And... Your main mission there is to do reconnaissance and support the ground commander. Um, so you, you basically get a, assigned a mission. You go out, you check in with the ground commander, and he will tell you what to do from there, and you're there to protect them. And then if you have to, um, you know, if you have to, to fight back, you will. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the Apache has uh, guns, rockets, and, uh, and Hellfire missiles on it. So, wow. Yeah. So you're, you're ready for bear. I mean, You are. Yeah. yeah you're, you're ready to, to give them hell. 
Can you share with us uh, maybe an old mission you went through and maybe a takeaway from that time, you know, when you were over uh, in Iraq? So the majority of the time, that was during the surge, right? So there was a lot going on. There was hundreds of thousands of troops there. Most of the time, believe it or not, it, it's when you're over there, it's it's kind of boring. It's not like you're engaging in conflict every single day that you're there. Mm-hmm. You go out, you do your missions. Um, you know, a, a lot of the times you don't have to do anything. You come back, you eat dinner, you work out, you go to bed. You don't have to worry about a lot of the things, mm-hmm. uh, you know, doing laundry or little small stuff like that. So in a way, going over and deploying is actually in, in some aspects of life easy. And then, you know, sometimes it does get intense. Um, but it's for a short amount of time and then come back and you deal with that stuff. And then you come back to the States and, you know, you, you make the best of it and you try to learn from your experiences, that type of thing. So there's a few, uh, you know, specific things I could talk about. I don't know if I really want to get into it, but that's kind of the thing I want to tell people that it's not like this crazy, mm-hmm. you're at war every second of the day, you know, it's, it's routine stuff. And then every once in a while you got to do something and then, you know, you come back and, and, you know, it's over. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's a lot of preparation, it sounds like. A Correct. Lot of being, being prepared, and then when it is time to act, you, you act and, you know, successful at it. So, so think yeah. about your my football analogy, yeah, right? Please. Where, where yeah. you know, you're practicing, and then you finally get put in the game. Now, all of a sudden, the quarterback throws the ball to you, and now it's time to catch the ball. And then that's the, that's a quick moment in time. And you either make the play or you don't, right? So right, that's perfect. That's yeah. a perfect one. What's uh, you know an average day for you like? Whether you know back home or in the military, I know we hit about a little bit. You know, prepping, laundry, working out, staying in, in tip-top shape. But uh, what's that like? Your average day? Yeah. So I, I thought about this a little bit over the last twenty-two years. I've had several, several assignments, um, and every one of them is different, and the requirements of what a typical day is going to look different, right? But what I can tell you is, uh, you know, my my current assignment, I'll kind of put it in non-military terms. I'm basically an administrator and an instructor at a school where we teach people military graduate level aviation training. That's basically anything from like your instructor pilot course to your maintenance test pilot course, advanced helicopter uh, mechanic training, that type of thing. We train all branches of the military. Uh, several different government agencies. And what's really cool is a lot of foreign military. Okay. Um, so we have foreign military come to our school all the time. And that's actually one of the more interesting uh, aspects of what we do is we see people from all over the world come to train here, which is great. My day looks a lot like anyone else that works maybe in an office or a school. Uh, but every once in a while, they do let me go out and fly and train, which is pretty cool. So, you know, it's again, it's normal stuff. You get there, you check emails, um, you know, you go to meetings, that type of stuff. I, I think when people think of what it's like to be in the military, they think that you're doing pushups all day. Right. No, it's, it's, yeah, a lot yeah. of, it's a lot of checking and responding to emails and going to meetings and being on MS Teams and all okay. that stuff there. So it's really like any other sounds office. Sounds very familiar. Yeah, yeah, it sounds very familiar. Any other office job, really. <laughs> yeah. But again, the cool thing is every once in a while I get to go out and fly, which is pretty cool. That's awesome. The people that come in, they're allies to the United States. And where do, where do they come from? I'll just kind of go over that broad stroke. It's, okay. it, it, you know, we have a lot of, we have a lot of partners in the Middle East that train. Um, we have a lot of people from South America, that type of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and we come in and they basically do the exact same training that we're going for. And yes, they are all allies. So um, it's really cool to see them, uh, their mission and how they view things. And it's really important to the partnerships that we have out there through all the world. So um, pretty cool stuff. No, awesome. I really enjoy talking to them and meeting them people. They're just different experiences yeah you know different different walks of life just like the podcast why is it here at the gap it's a well-known location like you say people come from all over the world to train 
here? I mean, this is one of the top places for aviators. Yeah, I think uh, what's public knowledge, and I think you can go on websites and see this. Uh, Fort Dean Town Gap itself is, the, I believe, the second largest um, National Guard training site in the country. Um, so, And it's just not aviation. It's pretty much every, everyone there. Yeah, so it's a very busy post. Yeah. We yeah. hear the gap, you know, firing off and, you know, you hear this boom and it's like, oh, well, there must be training at the gap. You know, yeah. that's, just, that's what people say. Now, my wife said not to mention this, but I'm going to. Okay. When I hear aviation, I, I think, and it's a popular movie right now, but Top Gun. Yeah. Is that, I know it's totally different aircraft. Uh, is that kind of what life is like to, in some cases or? Yeah. I mean, no. Yeah. Okay. That's what <laughs> I, I thought you were going to so say. So to be fair, I haven't seen the new movie. I, I actually do want to go see it. I didn't particularly like the first one, which I know is unpopular, but uh, you, you know, um, there's always Hollywood Mm -hmm. uh, you know, movies about what happens in the military. Some of them are a little more accurate than others, you know, and is a little bit of that lifestyle there. Sure. But I, you know, I think being in the military is, is a profession. So I think what people don't realize it's going to be like any other profession out there where, you know, it's not either overly glamorous or, you know, I mean, but it's, it's just, it's a profession. It's a job. Totally. In your career, you've received multiple military awards and in your bio, you listed some, you'd love to hear about them. Yeah, so that was a kind of a copy and paste from my military bio because, to, to be honest, I'm not huge on awards. It's not overly important to me. But there is one that I did get recently that I am pretty proud of just because it's kind of hard to get the career path that I want. So just recently, I received my Master Aviation Wings, um, which is basically the highest uh, time and service badge you can get as an Army aviator, uh, meaning that I've been flying for over 14 years and then the harder part of it for me, at least, was to get to 2,000 flight hours. So if you get 2,000 flight hours in 14 years, um, you get these master wings, um, which are it's hard to get in my rank. So I'm a major, hopefully be lieutenant colonel here sometime in the next year. A lot of guys you will find with that rank do not make master aviator. There's, an, there's another set of rank structure in the Army that flies, and they're called warrant officers. Uh, and they, they're the technical and te technical experts. Uh, when it comes to military AV or army aviation, right? So they're doing a lot more flying. I'm doing a lot more of the emails and the MS teams type stuff. So to kind of stick with it and reach that 2000 hour mark, I'm pretty proud of that. You're kind of tied to the desk doing the stuff that needs to be done. Not necessarily, you know, you want to do, but you got to do yeah. it. So and it, it's hard to stay motivated uh, to, to do the desk job and fly at the same time. I believe so. it. You're just sitting, filling out emails compared to rocking it in the skies yeah. i mean for real so you know there's a lot of helicopters we're a very busy um you know aviation community so if you like that sound and flying over your house that was me flying um if you find it completely <laughs> annoying because it happens too much it was someone else it someone else me. there you go that's awesome yeah <laughs> so now lou what what are you most passionate about obviously i'm passionate about my career uh about music which i think we'll talk about here in a minute you know, I'm passionate about representing the the post 9-11 veteran community. But honestly, my ultimate passion um, is being the best father I can for my two boys. I have a six and almost nine-year-old uh, boys. And, you know, my parents kind of set the foundation for me to be a decent father. And now I need to do everything I can uh, to give my children the best life possible. I do believe, uh, you know, in this country that every generation can get better. Um, and really, you know, if... I be a good dad, then everything else that I do will fall into place. My career, uh, my hobbies, that type of stuff. But I think first and foremost, you know, when you have when you have kids, your life changes, and it becomes about them, mm -hmm. right? 
And I'll tell you, and I know, and I think it's public knowledge, right? Yes. You and your yep. wife are expecting very soon, yeah. right? Your life is going to completely change where, you know, it's been about Austin and the wife and all that stuff like that. Um, it's going to change and it's going to be about the baby, right? And being a parent certainly isn't easy and you're not going to be perfect. But what you need to do is strive and never stop trying to be that better father figure and to be that role model. It's uh it's, it's an awesome experience and it's, it's, it's super amazing. Honestly, that's my passion. And if I do that well, everything else should fall into place. And that makes sense. I know it's Courtney and I, yep, it's our first. So we're excited, a little jittery, you know, because yeah. <laughs> uh, everyone's been saying it's going to be a big change. And of course, you know, it is. Uh, but to hear some, some tips from you, because you're really building the, in my mind, the cornerstones for your children, whether it's discipline or just teaching them, you know, day to day, cause they watch everything you do. Yeah. It's, it's going to be, it's going to be awesome for you. And, and you just kind of remind me of something like being in the military, being in aviation. Yeah. There's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of scary things that may or may not happen. Right. But I will tell you the scariest day of my life okay. by far was when they, with our first son, Nicholas, when they're like, all right, go home. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's like yeah. all of a sudden I what have do this, do? what do I do? I have this little baby and I, yeah. you know, we had him in the thing and we snapped him in the car seat and my wife and I both looked at each other and I'm like, whoa, yeah. this is a scary it's, moment in our life. That's when it gets real. I and, guess. and now my son's ready to turn nine. So wow, that's super awesome. cool, man. You get yeah. through it. It's, it's just, it's amazing. No, we're looking forward to it. Yeah. So for all the listeners out there, yeah. End of August, Parker Ann Sullivan is going to be coming into the world. Uh, Courtney and I are very excited and she's the first on both sides. So it's going to be a lot of love. Well, um, cheers to oh, Parker. Hey, amen to that. Cheers. Have your Centralia. Mm-hmm. I'll tell you, that's good. Lou, can I get a little more? Yeah, man. Well, just a little bit. I know it took a lot to get you here, but oh, don't give me the bottle. <laughs> I was poor a little bit. Do I don't you... want to spill anything on the nice equipment in here. Oh, no. Hey, we wipe it down. Do you want any? No, I'm fine. Thanks. Okay. So, all right. I'll put that back over there. That way I don't drink at all. Because I just have to walk home. <laughs> to get back on track, your volunteer time... Your nonprofit, you work with a lot of veterans organizations. Can you shout them out? Definitely give them a, a plug here. Yeah, sure. So I do very much uh, enjoy volunteering and advocating on behalf of uh, the current military as well as really all veterans. Um, I spent over a decade on the board of the Pennsylvania National Guard Associations, which is called PENGUS. That's the abbreviation for it. And what I like about that organization, it's an organization that's solely dedicated uh, to the well-being of the nearly 20,000 soldier and airmen in Pennsylvania. So what most people don't know is the Pennsylvania Guard, right, which is Air Force and Army, has almost 20,000 soldiers and airmen. It, at times, is the second or third largest National Guard wow. out of all 54. So it's a big organization. And then this organization, Pengus, solely concentrates on those people here in Pennsylvania and a lot of local people, which is great. They do a ton of amazing things. Um, one of the things that we do is a is a, a charity called the Guard to Guard Foundation. It's a 501c3f. And basically what it does is if, um, say there's a, a soldier overseas and he's deployed and back home, the you know the heater breaks or the air conditioning breaks or something like that. Yeah. And he needs, he can't afford it, right? That What this foundation is very quickly give that soldier airman some money to take care of that and, oh, wow. and fix it. That's huge. Um, and it's all done on fundraising and donations and all that type of stuff like that. So... If anyone is interested in going and checking that out, you can go to pngas.org, O-R-G. And then under there, you'll see the G2G, the Guard to Guard program, and you can make a donation if you want. Um, we have a lot of great sponsors and people that we work with to keep this program going. Really proud of the stuff that we do. And another thing that's really cool about it is 
There's also, this organization is on the national level, right? So Pengus is the Pennsylvania chapter of a, of a national level that's out of uh, Washington, D.C. So I go to the annual conferences every year there. And what's super cool about that is I travel all over the country to these wonderful cities uh, and I get to meet all these other veterans that kind of have the same thing. And like I mentioned early on, when I first thought about getting in the military, there was something about the camaraderie that was super special. And mm -hmm. I continue 22 years later to still feel that camaraderie, which is just amazing. So that's why I love doing the, the veterans organizations. It's important. Um, the last thing that we do, which is really cool, is that we do advocate for veterans benefits, both in Harrisburg and Washington, D.C. So we'll take off the uniform, uh, put on a suit. And we'll go down and, uh, you know, uh, we are a lobbyist organization, too, is one of the okay. things we do, which is th people think a lobbying is a bad word. And, and it's totally not. If you do it right, um, what you're doing is advocating for those people. Uh, and we've got some amazing legislation passed, uh, both in D.C. and especially in Harrisburg. The people oh, wow. in Harrisburg, the state government has been amazing to the veterans. So I want to thank them for that. Oh, that's really awesome. cool stuff. Oh, that's awesome to hear because you, you don't always hear the positives, you know, and, and hear what people are doing to better, you know, the, the community here and the, the people that have served. Being in the service, you know, a lot of stress, a lot of uh, you're always on the go, you know, always being prepared. Uh, I understand outside of work and community service, you really enjoy music and own a significant amount of guitars, which that actually surprised me. I'm always buying and selling guitars. So at any given time, I may have 20 hanging around, right? But it's 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 just not guitars, right? It's uh, it's it's banjos, it's ukuleles, it's uh, six string guitars, acoustic guitars, bass guitars. That's kind of my specialty is bass. Okay. And one of the cool ones that I have is I actually have a stand up or upright bass. Um, it's a 1952 K blonde bass, right? So it's from 1952. Whoa. It's the same upright bass that Johnny Cash and Elvis's bass player used. Um, this thing should probably be in a museum somewhere, but. I just slapped the hell out of the thing. Um, I actually played it in the last band that I was in. We're not together anymore, but what was really cool about it was uh, it was kind of a, a mix of rockabilly, punk, and country music, and we did very well here in the area. Uh, but yeah, that, like I said, that thing should probably be in a museum, but I just slapped the hell out of it all the time, and it's a lot of fun. So I started getting into guitar at maybe age 14. Two quick stories on that was... Yeah, please. Um, Someone introduced me to a bass guitar, one of my music teachers, and I was like, this is a lot cooler than playing trumpet, which I was playing <laughs> trumpet. No disrespect to the trumpet. Right, definitely. I just wasn't good at it, right? Mm -hmm. But then I started playing bass guitar, and I really liked it. At the same time, uh, I had a neighbor where I grew up, and he worked in a hospital, and all these doctors played guitar. It's really crazy. All these professional doctors, surgeons, cancer doctors, they, 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 played, uh, they played guitar, and they would come over my neighbor's house, and they'd sit around you know, and have a few drinks and right. sit around the campfire and play guitar. And my buddy and I were just like, man, we want to be just like these guys. Yeah. So he started playing guitar. I started to get a little better at bass. You know, we started putting together bands and again, picked it up at the age 14 and I have not set it down yet. It's the only, you know, with being, you know, with my career and being a parent, or, you know, there's not a lot of time for stuff. Right. This is the one thing that remains. You, for you make time for this. Sure, sure. Yeah. Do the kids... Do they like appreciate when you play and, and, and your wife, like, do you have those gatherings? Yeah. Come over? So yeah. I have the gatherings all the time. Um, I, I don't know if my wife likes it, but she respects the fact that that's the one hobby that I have left. I think she thinks it's too loud, okay. um, which is really, which is really funny. So we joke about it and we joke about that all the time, but my kids are definitely interested. 
you know, if they want to pick up and start playing, they can. If not, no big deal. But they do kind of enjoy watching the adults come over, just like I did when I was a kid watching my neighbor. Going into 2020, uh, COVID affected a lot of people, uh, shut down a lot of businesses, closed out a lot of restaurants, um, and we won't get too deep into it because that's a whole other uh, wormhole sure. people could dive into. But are there any issues that, that you're still facing today from that? COVID was was interesting for, for everybody. Um, you know, I don't think, looking back on it now, almost three years later, it's like, I don't think anyone really knew what to do. But, you know, so from a professional standpoint, from from what we did at work, it's like, you can't really shut down military training for a long amount of time. COVID hit, I think we shut the school down for maybe a month or so, but things got to keep moving in the military, right? So um, a bunch of really, really smart people got together and put together a plan to start bringing people back in the summer of 2020 to start training. And we went into everything and we got permission from you know the state leadership and everything like that. And we were able to bring students back and start training it was painful, don't get me wrong, because you know there were certain protocols we had to put in place, different masks, how they stayed in our dorms, which is yeah. it's kind of laid out like a college campus. We had to be very cautious. Um, and I'm proud to say that really since COVID kicked off and we, we started bringing people back, we trained almost 2,500 students since then. Wow. And we've been very successful with it. We kept everybody safe. A um, little bit of luck's involved with that and a yeah. lot of smart people getting together. So it was good to see that happen, and we continued training uh, the military, which was really, really good. From a personal level, you know, we, my family made an interesting experience of it as that we weren't really allowed to travel outside mm-hmm. of Pennsylvania, right? But it was important for us to still have family experiences. So we found a lot of stuff close by in Pennsylvania to go do, right? We threw on our masks, and we went out and we did stuff. Um, you know, we went to the Poconos, we went to Seven Springs, we did all, we had some great family experiences. And even though we didn't know what was going to happen, those are some of the best memories that I've had with my kids because we made the best of it. And we did it safely. Um, and it's just, we can look back on some of that stuff and say, yeah, you know, it sucked, but we made the best out of it that we could. Yeah. Quality time, you know, yeah. with the family. Um, sure. Right. You had to throw the masks on, which no, no one's a fan of that. Let's be honest. But I know like my wife, my father and, you know, the family, we went to um, to Hershey Park. You yeah. know, we had season tickets and uh, before COVID hit and uh, it was great because there was no lines, you know, nobody was around. Um, and now we try to go, you know, this summer and it's like packed, you yeah. know, it's just like back to normal. Of course, no one has masks or things like that. Spinning off of COVID and this kind of goes back to your passion, but you know, what drives you personally to do what you do day in and day out? Sometimes it's different for people, their, their passion compared to what drives them. Yeah. You know, I, I, I kind of already hit on it, Austin. Once you have, once you have children, in my opinion, what you, what you do day to day, it all comes down to your kids and your family and supporting them and giving them the best life that they can and trying to make things a little better. Every generation is really what I think is important. So you know, being a good husband, being a good father, that's what I want to do. Mm-hmm. Eventually, at some point, I'm going to transition out of the military and I'm going to do other stuff. So hopefully when that happens, you know, set myself up, have more time to work on veterans affairs, advocate for them, do more music, that type of thing. That's that's the plan right now. But focusing on the kids is really my day to day. Yeah. Goal. How can our listeners connect with those amazing organizations you mentioned earlier? Just kind of repeat that one more time. I talked about Pengas.org, P-N-G-A-S. Dot org. Um, you can see the kind of different things we've done, the legislation that we pass. It's really fascinating stuff. And then you have the G2G program there if you want to check that out. One thing that we didn't talk about was was the guitar. Oh, yes. Yeah. I think the bourbon started hitting me, but yeah. please, yeah, let's definitely talk about that. <laughs> yes. Thank you. Yeah, so we were talking about guitars and how I own a lot yes. of them. So yes. 
one of the things that I tried to get into was like, okay, let me design my own guitars. And this is a really popular thing for guitar players to do. Um, it's kind of called a parts caster where you take, cause you know, all the guitars I bought, there's always something I'm like, well, I wish they would have did this. And I wish I would have done that. So what people will do is they'll buy parts and then they'll assemble them. And I did a few of those and they turned out well. Well, for this one uh, that the listeners can't see right now, but maybe we'll take a picture oh, of it. Yep. Pictures on social media. I said, I'm going to actually build a guitar. Now, the problem is I don't know how to do the woodworking. Yeah. Okay. Seems like an undertaking. It is. It yeah. is. You have to have the right tools and all that stuff. So my friend, Zach, uh, who I work with, he's this amazing woodworker and he did this all by hand. So no CNC machine, anything wow. like that. He did it all by hand and did it. Holy cow. So that was super cool. But one of the interesting facts about it is the wood that the body is made out of is um, local ash wood. And if you know anything about the ash tree is that there's this... Uh, I think it's called the North American ash beetle or something like that. It came in and it basically destroyed the ash trees all over the country. Fender was making, Fender's a you know famous guitar maker, and they were making their bodies out of ash until the ash population got decimated. I actually got this piece of ash from this farm in Mechanicsburg. The cool thing about this farm in Mechanicsburg is uh, the person that owns it is a retired one-star general. So after he got out of the military, he did some other things. But one of his passions, he'd be a great guest for you to have. Yeah, yeah. I'll have to hook you up I, with I'm him. I'm listening. Um, one of his passions is doing these these live edges, which is these large slabs of wood. Oh, I love live edge. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. I do. I really do. So, my, the, so yeah. the, name of this, the name of this is called Wolf Creek Live Edge. And we call him General Wolf, right? Because he's a general. But uh, yeah, so he has this live edge and he has this beautiful you know, organic, locally sourced wood. And it's, it's a lot of it's from trees that have fallen over and he comes and he cleans them up. And I got this piece of ash from the wood pile there. My friend Zach cut it up. Um, I did all the design of, you know, the hardware and everything through trial and error. It took about a year during COVID and we got this guitar done. And then once we finished it, we went back to the wood pile at Wolf Creek Live Edge. And mm-hmm. we photographed it in the wood pile. Which oh, is that's really cool. awesome. Yeah. Oh, do you have those on Facebook, those pictures? I do, yeah. Oh, okay. I can share some of them. So. Uh, yeah, I'd love to see them. I mean, that looks it looks amazing. Like, and There'll be pictures on social media for all the listeners. But it, and what I mean amazing, um, like professionally made and, and something not mass produced, obviously, but just like the quality of work done there. Fantastic job. Thank you. Yeah, yeah seriously. Uh, again, Zach, uh, my friend Zach Rice, yeah. he, he's a fantastic woodworker. Did it all by hand. He has upgraded to CNC uh, now, but this one was done by hand. And it coming from the wood pile from the retired general, General Wolf, it was cool. So uh, if your listeners want to go on uh, Facebook, he's under uh, Wolf Creek Live Edge. He basically posts almost every day. He talks about his adventures and cutting all this wood and yeah. where it's from. And he knows the history and how old the wood is based on the wow. rings. It's really fascinating stuff. So he's a good friend of the family, and that's what came out of it right there. So... Pretty cool, pretty cool endeavor, and it's now my favorite guitar. Oh yeah, <laughs> I can see why. So uh, yeah, definitely. Uh, General Wolf, seats open and uh, doors always open if you'd like to come on the podcast. Sure, I'll connect you guys. Oh, perfect, perfect. And now, Lou, before we close out, is there anything else uh, you'd like to share with the listeners? Again, thank you so much for having. This was a lot of fun. It definitely got as we loosened up a little bit as the bourbon went yes. going. So that was <laughs> awesome. You know, I do wish you the best of luck with your podcast. I think you're onto something here. I can't wait to see what this thing becomes. You know, I also want to give a shout out to my wife Kathleen or Kathy, uh, who you know, uh, my boys Nico and JoJo. Um, they're gonna they're gonna listen. I think I did swear a few times, so 
my oldest son Nico will call me out for that and make me put a dollar in the, in, the, in the swear jar. Yeah, which he he doesn't let me swear, which is funny. So I'll probably have to put it, two or three dollars. It keeps in the you honest. Jar. No, that's awesome. Yeah, yeah. And I'd also like to say that you know now that COVID is over and you know people are going back to Hershey Park and all that stuff like that, go out and listen to live music, very specifically local from local musicians, right? Because you know, I noticed that the Hershey Park, when you know Guns N' Roses come, these things are selling out, right? Mm-hmm, right. But go see, go to the Allen Theater. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Go to Club XL. Go to one of these places locally. There's fantastic venues in there, and go hear uh, these unbelievably talented local artists um, because they need the support more than ever now. Yeah. Right? So live oh. music is back. Go see it. Oh, for sure. And there's so much talent locally. I don't know. There's a, a gentleman, just a uh, country singer, Warren. Uh, starts with a Z. Um, he just released a 717 tapes and he's, he just blew up and he's right here from, you know, from PA right in the yeah. area. So I, I couldn't agree with you more. Lou Fabrizi on the American Grown Podcast and the ColorTech Creative Solutions Studios. Thank you for joining me. Thanks, man. Cheers. Cheers. If you want to see more American Grown content, follow along on Facebook and Instagram. Username American Grown Podcast. If you received any value, please share this episode with friends, family, and coworkers. And lastly, subscribe and leave a review. If you'd like to be a featured guest on the podcast, please direct message or email Austin at AmericanGrownPod at gmail.com.